Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. A little bit of a tech angle on the articles this week, crossing over a little bit into history and games and a few of the other things I love, but mostly from a technology perspective. And I also have an interview with Matt Billman from Netlify, a, uh, a service that is amazing if you have a use for it. And that use is predominantly static site hosting, HTML site hosting, plus a bunch of other services, which is what we'll discuss. But in the meantime, let's get stuck straight into the links. First is an article on Long Read by Livia Gershon, entitled We All Work for Facebook. This article digs not just into Facebook, but also Google Maps, Reddit, uh, and a whole bunch of these other sort of free services where we all kind of or should know that we are really the product if we're not paying, and how we're almost kind of working for them. We are generating revenue for them. And some of the numbers here are actually quite stark. I think it's always been known that tech companies especially are somewhat efficient in terms of their revenue generation for the amount of staff they have. For example, Facebook makes 635,000 profit per employee of its 25,000 employees. Uh, Alphabet, Google's parent company, makes about 158,000 per worker. Whereas if you compare that to a more traditional business, for example, Walmart, it is just over $4,000. So you can see the huge disparity in those figures. And many would say, well, that's intellectual economy. But uh, in Walmart, you don't generally create revenue for Walmart. Um, as opposed, Well, it's, obviously you do when you buy something, but in addition to that. Whereas with Facebook and Google, unless you are buying ads or you are buying other services like Google's handsets or Facebook's devices, etc., etc., then you are making money for them by providing them information and interacting with the service, which is a very different paradigm, actually. To many of us, of course, these services don't really seem like work. They're not really. I mean, using maps, as the article suggests, to get from A to B is actually helping you. Not It's not work. But then, of course, the argument comes back that as we are actually generating revenue by using these tools for these companies, should they indeed be paying us? This is a conversation that comes up quite a lot. I've had this conversation with a few projects and people over the past few years. And unfortunately, none of the solutions or options that are proposed are ever quite convenient or usable enough or, of course, accepted by any of these companies to, 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 to ever get any traction. I wonder if they ever will. Uh, it would be interesting if they ever did. Um, I don't know how the revenue models of these companies would be affected, whether they would still uh, make an income. I guess they probably would because most people probably wouldn't. Uh, take these options. I don't know if um, if it would have to make it work. I guess it would have to be all or nothing, um, not opt in. Uh, I don't know. It, it's an interesting idea that has come up time and time again without ever really having any major explanation of how it could actually work, which is what I guess interests me the most. Is it actually even a practical idea? And even then, this gets into other other angles on this topic. Uh, I guess people, we I already mentioned Reddit, but uh, people who manage Facebook groups that are very busy and invariably doing it in their volunteer time, should they get paid for that? I think this is a little harder because effectively if you're running a service, then in theory you probably have some other ways of making revenue out of that service. Um, 
and if that's a not-for-profit service, then there's grant funding and things like that. Just because Facebook is the platform that you use, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Facebook should compensate you for that, I guess. It's a slightly different angle on the, the discussion. But I suppose it's more mentioning that all this free work that people are doing for these services is time-consuming and can burn them out. I know people who've run meetup groups, for example, and the even bizarre thing with meetup is that uh, organisers are the ones who pay, which is uh, kind of an interesting relationship, um, and fielding questions and dealing with complaints and handling logistics is time-consuming, and quite often, not always, it's not really someone's job to do so. But I suppose these are not necessarily new things. Uh, people have always been running things in their volunteer time. Uh, there's just uh, platforms that kind of make money out of people doing that as well, which is a, a different addition to that equation. And then, of course, we get into the subject of user-generated content. The argument would be that, uh, especially with something like YouTube, your content can make you money. But, of course, we all know that you have to get a lot a lot of viewers before you actually make any uh, significant income and it doesn't necessarily mean that your efforts were any less effort but again I suppose we could argue that musicians filmmakers actors have been volunteering their time with hope of success for many many years too so is it necessarily anything new again the thing that is new is that we are still making revenue for the platform in theory Although, of course, if you have very low, very low viewerships, maybe you're not really. But again, a different angle on this perspective, I suppose. So I guess the summary of this article is, well, you should read it a bit more to find some of the numbers, especially that I haven't mentioned. But also, I suppose, think about what you're putting into these platforms. Think about what you get out of it versus what the company gets out of it. And maybe weigh that up a little bit sometimes to check if it's really worth it to you. Next, uh, I feel like I have discussed this topic a little bit before, but it's something that fascinates me. This is on the outline from Joe Fakes, Joe Fay, I'm not 100% sure, called You Can't Beat an Unwinnable Game, But You Can Break It. This is about simulator games, sim games. I love sim games. SimCity, Civilization. Uh, I haven't played The Sims so much recently, but I, I did in the past. These sorts of games are these kind of open worlds with no real conclusion. I mean, Civilization, for example, kind of has win conditions, but then you can keep going. I guess you keep going until there's nothing more to do. And this article recounts the story of Vincent Ocasola, who kind of uh, did something similar with SimCity 3000. He claimed he had beaten it. Um, well, as I say, there isn't really a win condition, but he'd kind of taken it to the extremes he could. He had He's actually an architect's student in the Philippines, so he kind of, I suppose, should know how to design a city. He painstakingly designed, without any cheats, this very complex and dense city um, that had basically become the kind of most efficient city that was possible in SimCity 3000 in terms of revenue, etc., etc. But of course, yes, and you guessed it, the place for a real human would have been horrible to live. And he'd actually been planning this for nearly four years <laughs> on paper first before implementing it in SimCity 3000 and then let it kind of run its course. Uh, the city is called... Um, Magnazanti, and you can see some pictures of it even in the just the main shot of this image. In fact, the corner they've chosen on this image doesn't look so bad. I can see, I think, a space station. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. Um, 
It has over six million people in uh, in the in the city. It's full of enormous towers, which I've actually been playing City Skylines recently, and this again seems to be the main way to to build an efficient city. And I mean, many would argue that uh, high density living or even medium density living is really the only way to maintain cities and the demand for cities. But that's another discussion. There's next to uh, no green in the city, but there is no water pollution, no traffic or no crime or no vacant buildings or anyone over 55. I don't remember ages even being a thing in SimCity 3000 or at least they're making a difference, but it's quite fascinating. It's a bit Logan's run. It's sort of, yeah, urban perfection with uh, want of nothing else. But I think also the thing about the no traffic is that there's like no roads, I think, or very few roads. So there's no traffic because there's nowhere for them to go, I guess is the interesting thing there. I've often found it very hard to build cities in SimCity and City Skyline without roads. So I'm quite fascinated how that managed to work. And there is a YouTube video that you can watch, which I will do very soon because I find this stuff quite fascinating, as I said. The article then goes a little bit more into catastrophes that you can then rain down on your city. And uh, I remember in the original SimCity, these could happen more randomly, but you can still bring them down in yourself too. And there's some other great videos in this article of people doing this to their cities, building up these perfection and then just destroying them, which, of course, uh, I'm sure there's something uh, to be said in there about all sorts of aspects of human psyche. But uh, again, that's probably best saved for another conversation. But interestingly, this story or these stories of people doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily without its origins. The creator of SimCity, Will Wright, claims to have got his initial idea for the game after losing his home and all his possessions in a fire. Um, and he started to wonder about all the things we have and how we purchased them. Um, I don't exactly know how that led to SimCity. <laughs> it seems a bit more minute, maybe more like The Sims than SimCity to me. But he did go on to create The Sims afterwards, so maybe it was kind of a, a long game, shall we say. And this actually, again, I think feeds into a little bit of real life, these sorts of uh, huge concrete slabs that were put up in the 60s that were supposed to give everything that the citizens needed apart from life and soul and feeling and and human needs. It's just like a box, but an efficient box. And yes, Ascala's creation has um, no public resources like schools or hospitals. There's no, it's next to no employment. It's crowded and it's ugly. And again... I think this is where it gets interesting with a game like SimCity because the game will encourage you to have these things, but it doesn't necessarily stop you playing the game. Uh, I have been on my own uh, my own agenda trying to play a game of Civ 4 or 5 without having any religion, and I have not allowed an official religion. I've not built any churches, but of course the people still uh, celebrate some faith. I just don't sanction it at all. Um, so, you you know, it's the interesting thing with these open worlds. You can have these experiments and go against what the game wants to do, wants you to do, um, and see how that plays out. And sometimes that could lead to some interesting things. Sometimes the game may break, I guess, in this case, where you've kind of found a way around its constructs. Anyway, all quite fascinating. I really recommend you have a look at this article and watch all the videos um, if you're a fan of these games or just a fan of, uh, I guess, modeling life, I suppose. <laughs> Now, two Microsoft browser-related articles. First is an article from Chris Zacharias on his blog 
a conspiracy to kill IE6. Anyone who's ever done any web development remember the dark days when we had to use IE6. And there are still many of these dark days with us in many enterprise companies, especially where they don't want to break custom software that only ran in IE6 and all its non-browser standard glory. And whilst these uh, users are decreasing, they are still there. Um, but what, what happened to bring it downfall in the first place? And this is a really interesting uh, tale of rebelliousness within YouTube, just as it was taken over by Google. When the engineers there wanted to build you know, a, a Web 2.0 application but were constantly hitting the issues um, and restrictions that IE6 placed upon them and basically went a little bit rogue and decided to, instead of actually breaking the site, put a banner above uh, the video player for any IE6 user saying that the site will stop working in the near future. Of course, that's all it really was, actually. It was just this banner. And... Quickly, this spread around the rest of Google as well. It had turned out that the Google Docs team were intending to do something quite similar. Um, and slowly but surely, this actually made people start upgrading, um, uh, even though no one was planning to break anything in the near future anyway. And finally, they were able to update their sites and stop um, building in uh, features that would only work for a small percentage of users because this is what um, project managers at the time and product managers at the time felt was uh, was needed to keep these users. So if you are old enough, like me, to remember the dark days of IE6, in fact, I even remember IE5 and 4, so <laughs> going, going back and probably before that, they're just the ones I remember developing with and for. IE5.5 was the last Mac version, and I did used to use it. I remember the, uh, the About Us box and how the browser Chrome looked. But if you are from that era, you might find this a fascinating story. Maybe you even remember it. I don't. I still don't even use YouTube very much these days, to be honest with you. So um, I, I don't use it. I didn't use it uh, very much then either. <laughs> so I don't remember it myself. Um, but if you do, then uh, have a read. And likewise, maybe get inspiration for your own internal company struggles where you're attempting to make a change. Maybe this kind of tactic could help you too. On the complete flip side of this, a more recent story uh, on The Verge from Tom Warren called called Inside Microsoft's Surprise Decision to Work with Google on its Edge Browser. So the uh, browsers are now consolidating how the tide has turned into mostly using the Chromium engine. Chromium is mostly developed by Google, but Chromium and Google Chrome are not necessarily the same thing. There are other browsers built on top of Chromium too. But uh, Microsoft is a new company. Uh, they don't consider their rivals their rivals anymore. So this is a really interesting article on how the engineers at uh, Microsoft instead of going against the competition because I think they have also realized that going against that uh, competitor is kind of too hard now, they decided to work with them and work on improving Chromium together for the needs of both companies, uh, which is a really great story to hear and happens far too rarely, actually. <laughs> so, this includes commits into the upstream projects, especially into Chromium from Microsoft engineers and a little bit of vice versa, though mostly from Microsoft at the moment, and basically learning from these lessons because um, much like Google Chrome, Microsoft is looking to make this browser universal, not just a Windows 10 application, but Mac OS and uh, mobile versions in the long run too, and possibly even Linux because they're a Linux company now. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it... Who knows, and it remains to be seen, if the new relaunch versions of Edge will be popular or not. 
Um, Microsoft obviously has form, see previous story, of forcing browsers into Windows users' hands and the last version of Edge didn't necessarily work so well. But was this because of it wasn't a viable alternative to Chrome or was it because Chrome was just established in people's mindset? Who knows? Uh, but it's at least nice to see that even in the long run, if the browser is not successful, these engineers are contributing back to another project. And flipping back uh, to Google again now, an article on ZDNet from Stephen J. Vaughan Nichols, um, an article on how Chrome OS uh, will now, from uh, Google I.O.'s recent announcement, all support uh, Linux as well as Chrome OS. Uh, this, this is not new news, but it was reiterated and I guess kind of made more official and um, has been increasingly happen in, happening in Chrome OS since that announcement previous io so now you can open up a chrome os app switcher uh, get a terminal open and then you can start installing linux distributions uh, debian is very easy you can also get ubuntu relatively easily fedora um, and and i guess some others if you want to play this is fascinating i think i brought this up a couple of months back around the fact that uh, Microsoft and Apple are both sort of, I guess, losing enthusiasm for their desktop operating systems. And um, Linux maybe will end up being the last remaining proper desktop operating system for people who want a bit more control. But uh, Linux has always had this kind of mindshare issue. And maybe having a company like Google pushing it through its own Chrome OS, which is limited as an operating system, will bring it to a whole new audience, even if I would uh, hazard a guess that many Linux aficionados would not necessarily want a company like Google to be doing that for them. But sometimes the strangest people are end up being your allies. So uh, I look forward to seeing reactions from the community on whether they think this is good or bad. <laughs> and finally, uh, this is actually kind of a whole series of articles on the on Technology Review and also MIT Download Magazine that I read last week but I picked this one out particularly uh, from Karen Howe uh, about uh, the team behind DeepMind and there were some others um, that were also discussing this uh, last week around new, more general um, artificial intelligences for playing games. So this is the team that um, initially had uh, DeepMind playing Go and now they want to teach it to play a game called Hanabi, which I have played. Hanabi is quite fascinating. You're trying to create sets of cards with your co-players but you can't see your cards only your co-players can see your cards so there's a lot of social interaction and this is why the team are trying to figure out how you can make an artificial intelligence play this and some of the other articles around this subject this week were around getting artificial intelligences to attempt to play magic the gathering um, sort of for a different reason in that Magic the Gathering has so many nuanced rules and counter rules and contradictory rules that you often need human input to figure out what these contradictions might end up being. So the kind of wooliness is somewhat difficult to, uh, to program an artificial intelligence with. And this, uh, with, with the Hanabi example, it brings up uh, interesting challenges that AI has not really had to tackle before or not in this context I guess uh, being able to pick up implicit information or human hints, uh, the vagueness of human language. So I think it's numbers and colours in Hanabi. Um, so you might say to someone, you have two threes or something like that and figuring out what that 
could mean. Because it's not uh, a complete game board like chess or Go, the the AI doesn't have access to all the information it needs. It only has partial access to that information, which is, again, a very different challenge for an artificial intelligence. And they do have an open source environment, of course, where they counter some of these challenges that you can dig into and see how well it handles it. If you know the game, or even this just sounds interesting to you, then jump over to the article and find those details and uh, see how well it does. I think this is sort of early days. It's not as a kind of... Um, it's actually quite, in, in many respects, it's quite novel and groundbreaking, but it doesn't seem to be as uh, as newsmaking as the Go and chess. And I'd also recommend you... Oh, I'll link this uh, somewhere. I'd also recommend you go and take a look at this article around the Magic the Gathering uh, side of things too. Um, I have found the topic of kind of general game engines quite interesting because humans, of course, can interpret rules and then figure out how to play. But an AI has to be told rules and understand rules before it can play. So it's, it's one of these strange things where humans are still exceeding right now. And that was my links for the week. An interesting mixture. Artificial intelligences. We had games. We had some technology history. All the good things in my mind. Next, another good thing and a product that I love and have been using for a long time and I don't know why it's taken me so long to uh, get one of the people from Netlify on the show but I have an interview with Matthew Billman from Netlify talking a little bit about the platform but then specifically a feature they just announced which is Netlify Dev. Enjoy. My name is Matt Billman and I'm CEO and co-founder of, of Netlify. Uh, Netlify is a, is a platform that allows developers to, to build, manage and deploy modern web projects really centered around this idea of, of decoupling the front-end presentation layer from the back-end layer. Um, and, and we sort of have specialized in taking care of that whole front-end layer, whether it's something you built with static site generators or whether it's single-page applications or... Uh, anything in between mm. and you uh, wait, I guess in the world I operate in it feels like mm -hmm. you're everywhere but um, the world <laughs> I operate in is, is, a, is a niche world so <laughs> um, for example Netlify has been very popular with documentation sites especially yeah. for open source yeah. projects because you're very friendly yeah. to them um, yeah. All... yeah we probably run about like I, I think I think we can even say that we probably run the majority of the open source documentation sites in our space, right? So like uh, React.js yeah. is on Netlify, yeah. Ember is on Netlify, yeah. uh, Vue is on Netlify, uh, Hugo, Gatsby, and so on are on Netlify, yeah. and even tools like Kubernetes yeah. or Istio or anything like that is, is on <laughs> Netlify. And I'm currently <laughs> trying to switch another project to Netlify right now. Uh, <laughs> awesome they, have a, they have a... A ridiculous downloads folder, which I need to switch out, which will break your builds. So, <laughs> so, so I'm just, I'm just. You might be it. able to, you might be able to handle it with. No, like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Large, it, needs to be, it needs to be moved. It needs to be moved anyway. It's in a GitHub repository and it's done there. Uh, people yeah, are complaining we, about we, it because every time they check out the project, it takes like ten minutes to check out the project. So, <laughs> so it, it makes sense. It makes sense. We, uh, we do have like the know, large media option that that can that can like where you can offload those files yep, to like yep. something like an S3 bucket, even if, and then just keep pointers to them. Yeah. And if anyone visits my personal website, christianchiller.com, that's also on, on Netlify, <laughs> not the podcast because, awesome. uh, 
that just it doesn't make sense to host a podcast with Netlify. But <laughs> uh, and a big a big fan of Netlify for quite some time. Um, I used to work a lot with in the CMS world and sort of had a revelation with static site generators. Um, and in the past worked at a, a company called Contentful who also match up with a lot of um, what you're doing. And I know people won't be able to Very see this, so. but as far as I saw very briefly, you're wearing a Jamstack T-shirt, which <laughs> yeah. a lot of these companies kind of um, uh, correlate with. So maybe actually what is Jamstack then? I, I know you've you've spoken about this on quite a few shows and I think you even have your own show on this um, or someone does. So what is Jamstack and how does that fit in? Brian Douglas runs Jamstack Radio, right, and has for a long time. He's at GitHub now, but in... But I mean, Jam- Jamstack stands for for JavaScript APIs and markup, um, okay. and and as a term, it, it it was a term we coined when when we were sort of um, early in the days of Netlify and and in the early days. Today we are we are like much broader. We have serverless functions, uh, a very flexible edge ending. We run a lot of applications as well as as content driven sites. But early on, we were also quite focusing on like really solving the issue of like how do you build great infrastructure around working with site generators that mm. that take that take some source and often combine them from tools like contentful and so on and then spit out like a a, a pre-rendered site that you can put directly on the CDN, right? Um mm-hmm. and and we saw that there was these parallels to that process with the tools like Webpack and so on that would take a bunch of sources and spill, spit out like the bundles for a single page, page application. And then you could put those on the CDN or the whole idea of progressive web apps. And um, and they all sort of circled around this idea that, that, that as the browser has become much more mature and much more powerful, instead of having like a traditional like web architecture where we have a very big monolithic application like whether it's a Rails application or a WordPress site or a Drupal site or anything like that, right? The story was sort of mm-hmm. always this free tied architecture with like your web server, mm-hmm. your application server and your database, mm-hmm. right? And every every request would go through that whole like monolithic system and spit it out. And in each of those monoliths would sort of have their own their own plugin infrastructure, right? So you would have like WordPress would have their plugins, Rails would have their Ruby gems, uh, Drupal had its own ecosystem and so on. And everything there happened inside this big monolith, right? So mm-hmm. what, what we just started observing was like this architecture emerging where all of that got split up and where you would take like the actual front end layer and just build it as, as a static front end that you could put directly on a CDN, right? Like, and you would sort of reverse the flow with, if you depended on content, instead of pulling that content in at, at runtime, people would start doing things like, like talking to Contentful, right? And pulling in all the mm-hmm. content at build time mm-hmm. and then building out all the pages, right? And, and, and then from the client, from the browser, you would have this JavaScript-based runtime that would no longer talk to some specific origin server, but talk to all kinds of different um, microservices, right? Where where some would be systems like Algolia and Stripe that other people host, and some might be built with serverless functions or your own microservice infrastructure, or whatever, right? But mm-hmm. but we just started seeing like this 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 tendency that sort of united the space of static site generators of progressive web apps of single page applications and they were all based on this basic idea of like pre-building a bunch of markup that can like b 
be be hosted directly on a CDN without some origin web server, uh, and then use JavaScript in the browser as the main runtime, and then mm -hmm. talk to all these different APIs. And 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 initially, we just kept seeing that 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 a lot of people were doing this, and a lot of people were sort of going through all the words I just went through to describe what they were doing. Oh, I know again when we were talking to them, right? And we had to do the same all the time. So, so we really sort of discovered that we needed a, a, a word that could encapsulate mm. that in the same way that, that in a way back, back in the day when, when, um, when someone wrote a blog post and, and, and coined the term Ajax, right? Like that, yeah. that was like, it wasn't like a new invention, right? Like the, the XML HTTP request API had been in the browser for a long time, right? And, and, and Google had started building some application based on it and so on, right? But once someone sort of gave it a name and said, like, let's call it Ajax, it made it much easier for developers to, to communicate about and, and, to, and to build with, right? Just because suddenly you had like a vocabulary. And we kind of started feeling that this was similar, right? Like it wasn't that we were inventing something new or anything. It was just that there was really this need for, for, for putting a name on that architectural pattern so people could better sort of talk about all the interesting things you can do with it or the patterns around it instead of just describing the, the workflow itself over and over again. And, and, then, and then we like, at some point, I, a friend of mine actually coined the term Yamstack, and I, I figured out what the what the acronym would stand for in a way, right? I don't uh, think I actually ever checked what it meant. Yeah. And now you just reminded me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like JavaScript API and markup, right? And 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 we started just talking to to other players in in the industry, right? Like I think one of the first ones was Tom Preston Verna, who 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 obviously started GitHub, but also it's it built Jekyll and was like an early pioneer in this, right? Um, and and he was also one of the first that said, yeah, like let's 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 start calling it that because then we have a name, right? Um, and uh, and then we just gradually started like talking to more and more people, and and I think that it just turned out also to be really useful to people, right? As a way of talking about this category. And yeah. and now we're really seeing like a, a community around it. So so the teacher is is one I got when when I went to the Jamstack conference in New York and talked there. And and uh, a small startup and also in the CMS space called TechShape came there with their uh, with their Jamstack T-shirts and 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 gave them out. Right, so I got one of those. And 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 it's just been really nice to see that that kind of like community adoption of the term and, and seeing all the companies yeah. in the in the space that are now sort of you know, huddling together around it and yeah and using yeah. It. yeah yeah and so let's have a look uh, specifically at netlify and the, the 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 i guess the 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 role you play in this this stack which is a is a, is a couple um so a lot of people would probably use netlify in a very simple way in that you can hook it hook up a, a, a project or repository uh, running a wide variety of static site generators or just um, raw HTML. You could set up triggers from uh, uh, Git builds um, or use a CLI tool to, to trigger builds and you very quickly end up with, a, with an HTML site available um, very fast, firstly because it's HTML, but secondly because you also have CDNs. That's kind of the, the base function of Netlify, but you also have a lot of other interesting features that start to uh, add a lot of those components that people might have used the CMS for in the past. 
um, things like identity and logins, which is very useful and, and something I intend to look into with a, with a particular um, with a particular project I'm working on very soon because that would be very useful for, for uh, a certain use cases. Um, you also have functions which are using uh, Lambda functions from AWS for, I don't know, whatever you want to use a function for, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, forms which, again, lots of people would have created in uh, CMSs in the past um, and or on a lot of static sites these days would probably use an external service, but that goes somewhere else. So it's kind of a, a convenient way of, of keeping everything in one place. You've also just added the large media using Git LFS. Actually, maybe let's, let's discuss that one a little bit because <laughs> that's relatively yeah. new as a feature. Yeah. And that starts to open up... Um, uh, a lot of a lot of potential new use cases that people hadn't thought of before. Yeah. And to be honest with you, LFS Git LFS has been around for a little while, but you don't hear of that many people using it that extensively. Nope. So nope. maybe um, let's have a quick chat about that feature and and what what you do with it and what you're hoping people might be able to do with it with Netlify. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so LFS stands for Netlify Large Media, right? And mm. and um, or like we call it Netlify Large Media, and it's based yep, yep, on yep, Git yep. LFS, which is a Git Large File System, right? Um, which um, which came from the fact that that Git is like an extremely good version control system mm. for anything that's text based, right? It's it's based on mm. these content addressable shards, and 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 it gives you like a lot of really great characteristics to 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 base your storage in this kind of content addressable shards where every piece of content just get a, gets a share and and you can track if the content changes the, the it will create a new share and you will have a new object and so on right the problem with that is that that as soon as you start working with very large files every mm -hmm. time you make any kind of change to that file the whole object gets replicated in your repository and mm. and git sort of starts becoming a very inefficient system so so git lfs probably in the initially came out of of things like video game companies and so on wanting to keep mm. their whole mm. uh, source code under version control um, but figuring out that that git simply didn't work well for that because these very big assets would be kept in the git repository and you would get these humongously bloated git repositories that started becoming mm -hmm. slow to work with and painful mm -hmm. and so on. So at some point, GitHub um, invented the, the Git LFS standard and, and, and open sourced it. And, and what it does is really that it makes, it allows Git to use like an external cloud hosted object storage to put the actual objects in and then just keep pointers in, in the local Git repository to those objects. So what you store in the Git repository is just a tiny little text file saying like, we have this object stored in an object store somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we started noticing that that for a bunch of, of, of content-driven sites, you would run into sort of the same issue, right? Like some sites, um, imagine you have sites that has a really big product catalog with thousands of, of images, right? Like that also starts giving you like terabytes of, of data and you really don't want like a Git repository with terabytes of data in it. It's like it's really not what Git was was meant to 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 be used for. Um, and at the same time, what you what you really want when when you manage that is that like you want 
you, you want to have those images actually stored in some kind of cloud service so, so they can be loaded very fast from, uh, from the website, right? So it, it seems to us that, that, that Git LFS made for a really interesting like solution in that space where, where you could just start saying, okay, um, let's take all these large files and then just put it into a cloud service that, that Netlify can, can operate along with its normal file storage. Um, and then only store the text files in, in the repository. And then we also saw that, that a lot of the site generators has, have, have implemented tools for things like image resizing um, mm -hmm. and um, scaling images and so on, cropping and, and, um, and all of that are, are things that sort of the traditional CMSs has also been able to do on the fly mm -hmm. um, because it's such a common part of like you, you make a template and you need like to, to use responsive images or you need to have thumbnails and, and, and the best way to do that is, be, is to be able to in the template language somehow just specify the, the images you want. But it's a part where again, if you have like a really large image driven site and you use a site generator, to do the, the image resizing well, then every time you have a build first, you need to sort of fetch all of those images from a really large repository and run a lot, long series of transformations to them and then upload all the different versions of them to a cloud service right during the deploy and so on. And it just becomes a, a fairly inefficient process. So what we did with Netlify Large Media was just saying like, let's make sure that, that any object that's stored in Netlify Large Media, and that that's an image, you can just uh, specify some URL parameters and say like resize this to crop it to two hundred times two hundred, and and it'll just happen directly at the CDN level on 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 the fly, and you don't have to to pull those down into the build and so on. Another thing that that this opens up for that that right now the use case is not totally supported. We we still have a little issue around getting being better at streaming large objects from Netlify large media. But once that's in place, um, it would, uh, it, it, it'll be a good fit is, is things like you just mentioned podcast, right? Like it's another thing mm -hmm. where if you're making a podcast with this approach, right? Like there's no, there's really no reason you wouldn't use a site generator for it, right? Like it's a very standard, like block type site where, where you have like articles and you have an RSS feed and so on. Right. But, what's holding it back is typically that, that you really don't want to store all of your block, like all of your, the actual audio files in a Git repository again, because Git is really bad at that. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, here you could just go and say like store any audio file in Netlify large, large media. And then all you store in, in the Git repository is just a, a pointer file saying like, this yep. is the, this yeah. is the file. Right. And, and, and now, and, and now people can, can load those files directly from our cloud storage in, in, instead of instead of every deploy sort of having to pull those down and then push them up and so on. Yeah, it, it's a nice consistency tool because I know depending between the static site generator, some of the plugins or functions for resizing images can be a bit inconsistent. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess it also makes it easier to switch static site generators um, yeah. as well. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And also from a product perspective, it's a, I don't mean this in a, in a bad way. It's a good way for you to make some revenue because of course. Um, media is expensive. <laughs> Storing media is expensive, especially if you get into streaming. Um, and you're going to be charging by a transformation 
the the free tier is two and two and a half thousand, which sounds like a lot, but you know, if you have a hundred images and you make three transformations per image, that's already three hundred. So we do um, cache the transformations, so it's typically oh, okay. a pretty okay. reasonable rate, even for okay. large size. But we do yeah. also, of course, like the the bandwidth used from large media also counts against the general like bandwidth tiers yeah. we have, yeah. right? And how do you, I mean, how at the moment it's mostly optimized for images, but if someone were to host like downloads, how would you monitor that from a, from a bandwidth perspective, just purely the bandwidth? Yeah. Yeah. Or, that would know. just be, the, okay. then, then we would just be judging for the bandwidth basically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, but the, the new feature that you just announced, which I've yeah. been uh, experimenting with and hitting a, cool. a few, a few, a few issues, it is beta yeah. <laughs> is, and, and do and this is and, interesting. And, and do post them in our community or. I will. I will. Page. I'm just. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out if it's a, a Jekyll issue or a, uh, or a Netlify issue. So okay. <laughs> I'll go back to that at a later date. Um, so one of the issues with a lot of these kind of continuous build systems, yeah. and I know Circle has some concepts of this, um, Circle CI, and a couple of other kind of CIs as well. Is you know when you. Um, send everything off to a, a build service, a CI service to do some magic for you, you kind of lose a little bit of control sometimes about seeing if things are working. Um, you sometimes have to wait for pull request to complete before you can see if the change you made was was useful or if it broke something, etc. So having the option to test some of these locally somehow is always uh, a, positive, uh, a positive thing to be able to do. I mean, with a lot of the ways people use Netlify, it might just be basically um, rendering and hosting a version of a, of a static site generator so they can do that locally fairly easily. But with a lot of these new features, there might be other things they want to, to test. Yeah. So as far as I can understand, what Netlify Dev is basically a local version of your platform yeah. um, for people to be able to test these things. Yeah. But maybe... Just flesh that out a bit, just in case I missed a few things, or what what yeah. your reasoning for releasing this feature was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a big part of it comes has has been there all since the beginning, right? Like as we as as we started build out Netlify, it part of what we you could say we do is that we replace the web server, right? Like when you use Netlify, mm -hmm. you no longer have a web server, right? Like and 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 you no longer have some central origin, right? Like before that, you would always like put your site on 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 some nginx or apache server somewhere right like and then you might put a cdn in front of it right but it was still like the site lived there and and in general typically all requests for the actual html pages would go all the way to that origin data center and talk to your web server and and so on right and you can say one of the early things we did was build this globally distributed network where where with netlify you don't deploy your your site to like a web server somewhere right like it, it gets deployed all over the world but that also meant that that for more advanced users of course a bunch of the things that you used to do on your local web server we have to give answers to like how do you do them at the edge so early on that was like first the really basic things was like redirects right like anytime you port a project from 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 one cms to a new one you you typically always end up having to 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 maintain a bunch of of, of redirects for seo purposes and so on right the other things were proxying, which was really common for, for things like single page applications, right? Where you want to mm. get around course issues and you want to be able to, to talk to an API somewhere without going to another domain and so on. 
Um, then there's more advanced use cases like um, language country-based redirects uh, or rewrite rules mm-hmm. for, for internationalization and localization yeah. and all of those were edge rules, right? Uh, and, and right since the beginning, we've been great at, at like having an extremely fle- flexible rules engine that, that allows you to do a lot of those things directly on the edge. But of course, that also meant that, that while you're developing things, you, you, you didn't write, have like a, a great way of testing those locally and knowing if they worked, right? And so we've even had some community-built libraries that tries to imitate our redirect engine and so on, right? But, but then it's again, like it's, it's not the real thing, right? Like it's, it, you, you don't know for sure if it's actually working the same way as, as when you push to production. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we one of the big things we introduced was was serverless functions uh, that also yeah. sort of comes yeah. with its own own routing layer and and sidesteps. Like before Netlify, right when when AWS Lambda first came out, it was really clear that 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 there was this huge promise in in being able to just write some functions, have a web endpoint, and not having to worry at all about where is where are those functions running and and what does it take to scale them and so on. Right, like it's a very powerful mm-hmm. concept. But then in, in practice, like the workflow around it, around like for every function, you need to sort of set up an API gateway endpoint. And now you need like a deployment process and CSD pipeline for that function. How do you tie like the staging version of that function to the staging version of your front end? And all of those things became quite cumbersome, right? And, and not super ideal to work with and, and kind of made it feel like having all these small functions was more of a, like, a, a, a workflow trap than than a benefit, right? And so, so we came up with this concept of like, what if you could just have your functions in a folder in the same repository as your front end, and then every time you you get pushed, those functions just go live on a relative path on your site, and you and you don't have to do anything. Yeah. You don't have to deal with API gateways or anything like that, right? But then again, of course. That, that that also means that people can build really advanced uh, things with the combination of like a static front end and, and these functions. And and it wasn't very ideal having to push to Netlify or push to a pull request or anything like that just to test if it works, right? So initially we, we made a library called Netlify Lambda that people could sort of integrate into their own tool chain and then locally they could set up proxy rules and so on to get it to work like it would in production but that's that's also quite a bit of a hurdle to, to jump through right and it's still not really the real deal um, and then latest we we, we introduced our um, add-on ecosystem uh, where the first partners are starting to to build services that you can provision and, and set up environment variables and routing to directly just just by writing like Netlify add-ons create FornaDB or Netlify add-ons create TakeShape or whatever. Um, and then again, like that's great. You, you can do that and then they work on Netlify and in our environment. And when you run your build there, we inject the right environment variables and we inject them into your functions and we set up all the routing and so on. But now again, the same question becomes, how do you, how do you test that locally and how do you make it work locally? So with Netlify Dev, we really set out to 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 say, okay, how how can we make sure that you can run the whole platform locally in a in a really easy way? And one of the first steps we took there was the actual rules engine that runs at the edge. Um, that that's a rules engine written in in C plus plus because of course everything we do at that edge layer we want it to be extremely performant. 
Um, so we took that whole engine and then compiled it down to WebAssembly. Okay. Um, yep. And WebAssembly, you can you can just load and execute from a node from 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 node, right? So so that gave us an easy way to actually like package that whole rule engine and make it part of a local dev server. And then we built Netlify Dev to like run this process where where it will when you start it up, it will try to detect the build tool you're using and find mm -hmm. the right settings. And then it'll spin up the, the dev server native to that build tool. So if you're using uh, Gatsby, it will spin up the Gatsby dev server with live reload and everything. If you're using Jekyll, it will spin up the Jekyll server and so on. And that's because often often those servers have some specific logic to 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 how their platform works, right? And we don't want to break that. We want to support that and, and make people able to, to iterate fast in those tools. But then we also spin up a little server that will uh, run any of your Netlify functions locally. And then we spin up a third little server that just sits as a proxy um, and receives every request locally, runs our whole rules engine, detects if something is a path to a function or an add-on and everything and sets that up. Um, that will also sort of inject all the environment variables for your add-ons or from your, from your Netlify side environment into your local functions or your local dev server and make sure all of that just works. Um, and and then really ties it all together, so that becomes yeah. really just like your 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 simple local tool, right? And you can also use it like you you don't even need to have some specific build tool if you just run it in 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 a folder with a purely static site, we'll just spin up a static web server, right? But otherwise, we'll just uh, try to detect which tool you're using and and do the right thing. And then in case we can't detect it, you can define your own your own settings for it. Um, and then another thing we saw was what you talked about, right? That sometimes when you're collaborating quickly, like you, you want to get some, some eyes on something or you're working with a client and they have to see sort of in real time what you're doing or something, right? Mm. Um, and, and again, that becomes a little cumbersome if every time you have to like run a build and do a deploy. And so we added this option of running Netlify dev dash dash live that will just then just immediately like run that dev server locally on your computer, but uh, set up a live tunnel to a URL on under netlify.live that you can share with anyone and, and they can then directly from, from that URL essentially access your, your web server running locally, which is really powerful for, for, for quick that's iteration. That's quite cool. Yeah, <laughs> as a lot of people will use other options for that. Yeah. Um, like bundling it all together is, yeah. is, is quite cool, actually. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you think so. <laughs> I'm still, I still kind of need to, 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 to play with this a bit more because yeah. it's odd. Like you, you look at the the page and it looks like, oh, this it's quite, it's quite sort of a, a simple feature, and yeah. then you realize it's actually quite a lot you can do. Yeah. Um, that isn't immediately obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and how well uh, has it been received so far? It's it's had an like we we were like. You never, one of the things that's always super interesting when you launch a feature like this is that mm. like we've been thinking of it for a long time, right? And we've really figured mm. out how, how important it would be both now and both in, in, in sort of in tandem with, with the features we have on our roadmap and so on, right? So, so we were very convinced that, that, that thinking about Netlify really in terms of almost these three, three layers of Netlify dev mm. for your local machine, Netlify built as the sort of collaborative tool with the web UI and so on, and Netlify Edge, where your actual site infrastructure lives, 
it made a lot of sense and 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 would be really powerful from 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 a product roadmap perspective and so on but at the same time when you launch something like this right you never know how how well people how well will it resonate right well people is it something you have to nurture for a long time to gradually get people to to understand why would i want that or is it something that people immediately see the need for and so on and that's been really exciting that like when 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 we launched um, people really got it right like the, we we got uh, an, an an amazing reception on twitter and hacker news and reddit and so mm -hmm. on right and 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 there's really there's really been genuine excitement around it so so that's something that 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 we've been really like that's really just confirmed our belief that it's going to be important right but it's also always nice to see when uh, when when the community agrees <laughs> okay and I mean, we've just talked about a new feature, but you, you do seem to have been moving quite uh, quickly recently, seemingly anyway, with a lot of new features. Um, what's next? <laughs> what are you working on next? <laughs> Lots of things. I mean, a lot of things are, are, are incremental, right? So a lot of things is taking now yeah. what we just yeah. launched around Netlify Dev, and there's a lot of work still to do there, right? Like there's a reason we named it Beta. We still want yeah. better support for our identity service for forms and uh, for Netlify large media and all of these things, right? So there's a whole whole roadmap just for that service, right? Like the same around functions. There's a lot of things we want to do there uh, yeah. around the add-on integrations. There's there's a lot of things we want to push out there. Um, and then uh, same, same in terms of just expanding, like we have these very powerful rules and in running on the edge, but of course we're also looking to like, how can we make that mm. even more powerful and even mm. uh, take take it even further what what you can do there and, and what we can make easy and, and and viable to work with directly at that edge layer. Um, so there's a lot of things in store there. And then 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 we do have a, a really nice thing brewing that I that I don't want to spoil yet. <laughs> but that we are planning on 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 launching at the Jamstack conference in in, in July in terms of okay. a new feature. It's something that we are like we actually, one of the things we've also been really excited about was launching our community, uh, community.netlify.com recently. Um, and uh, let me just see if I can find, like if, if, if you go there right now, there's a, there's a thread um, highlighted called saying closed beta tester wanted. Um, so um, <laughs> there we, we're starting a new beta program where, where we're going to take some of the really early adopters and, uh, and, and people who, who like to, to, to stay on the bleeding edge and invite them to, to try new features before we announce them to the public. Um, so if you want a sneak peek of, of what's coming, you should, you should all go there and, and, uh, and, and sign up. And that was my interview with Matthew Billman of Netlify. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you uh, go and check out what they have to offer. That's another Weekly Squeak for this week. You can find a previous episode at christianchiller.com slash podcasts. And you can find the associated newsletter also on christianchiller.com slash newsletters. Please rate or review or share the show wherever you found it. And you can tweet at me at chrischinch and find further details on the website I just mentioned. In the meantime, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.